Welcome to a special edition of Savage Marriage with Phil and Priscilla. And I'm Phil. And I'm Priscilla. You'll be listening to Phil and I read our award-winning book, Savage Marriage, Triumph Over Betrayal and Sexual Addiction. We're releasing the audio version of our book for free, chapter by chapter, every few weeks on this podcast. If you benefited from our ministry, share this podcast with someone else. You'll be glad you did. And here we go. Chapter 5, Releasing the Power of Humility God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4.6 One of the greatest works of grace in the heart is to humble our pride. Charles Spurgeon I arrived at Four Days to Freedom just in time for dinner and quickly found Paul Speed. He was tall and lanky, wearing shorts, a whatever-it-takes t-shirt, and no shoes. He showed no pretense, and I liked that. The last thing I needed to see was a bunch of business guys in ties. Hi, Paul. I'm Phil Fretwell. I spoke with you from the plane a couple of weeks ago. Hi, Phil. So glad you made it. You can put your things on one of the beds, and we're going to eat in a few minutes. Make yourself at home. Paul seemed easygoing, affable, and used to handling a group. There were eight participants, plus Paul, and a couple of guys preparing food. I realized all of us were there for a reason, probably because we'd reached the bottom of the pit or our wives had demanded we come. However, no one wanted to admit it, and we busied ourselves with typical small talk about where we were from and what we did for work. After dinner, Paul got down to business. He quickly summarized his personal story and then passed the conversation to us. Guys, let's go around and each take a few minutes to share why you're here. I had been to other men's retreats, and most of them had included some type of call to transparency. I had always hung back, waiting to hear how much other men were willing to share. I had even helped lead a men's retreat several years earlier and suggested to the pastor that participants not be put on the spot because it was uncomfortable. Of course, it was really me who hated opening the kimono. But this time, I quickly raised my hand. I usually relished all eyes on me as an opportunity to make myself look smart. But this time was different. Paul's candor with me on the plane about my pride problem was still fresh on my mind, and I knew there was no room to manage my image. I was going to be self-effacing with no expectation of admiration from anyone. I was in a pit and willing to do whatever it took to get out, so I shared honestly. About two weeks ago, I came clean with my wife. I told her I'd been leading a double life, hiding sexual sin from her for most of our marriage. My summary weighed heavy on my emotions as I spilled what I had painfully told Priscilla in detail less than two weeks earlier. I choked back tears to continue. I had been using porn since I was a kid, but thought getting married would finally give me a God-ordained sex partner who would cure all my problems. Well, that didn't work, and my porn issue grew to include going to strip clubs and massage parlors, and I couldn't stop. All the time, I've been active in my church, leading weekly Bible studies, and serving as an elder. All the secrecy was killing me. And about four months ago, I cried out to God to heal my mind. I needed a rescue because I was so unhappy with my life and 
all my efforts to fix my problems had failed. And about four weeks ago, I saw symptoms that led me to believe I had contracted an STD, and it scared me to death. I called a good friend, and he connected me to Paul. Paul told me I needed to embrace humility by confessing what I'd done, starting with my wife. So that's what I did, and it was the most difficult conversation of my life. I'll never forget the picture of her in our kitchen, screaming, stamping her feet, and telling me how disgusted she was with me. But she said she would help me find healing. I know we have a long way to go, and that's why I'm here. My brief testimony felt so different from all times past when I'd spoken to a group. Gone was my typical protectionism, posturing and jockeying for position. I no longer wanted to be revered and seen as profound. I was as low as one could go. And the first step to freedom was to be authentically transparent and humble. I wasn't sure where to begin, but instinctively I knew a good start was being open about what a reprehensible person I'd become. Maybe one day I'd also be able to describe how God healed me. But that wouldn't be today. This day was to tear down any lingering pride, beginning with my desire to look good and be somebody. Even though the group of men was small, all with similar problems, it was a start and felt scary and beautiful at the same time. As the evening continued, other men's stories included porn use from their childhoods. I had expected that, but noticed something different about the way Paul talked about porn. In addition to the P word, he also used the M word, masturbation, and he used it frequently to my shock. The P word was socially acceptable, but I'd never heard anyone say the M word at church. Occasionally, I'd heard it at a men's retreat, but it had been quickly swept aside, everyone feeling the awkwardness of shame it invoked. The more Paul said the M word, the more I began to see that masturbation was the real crux of the problem related to porn. After all, porn without masturbation was just frustration. Masturbation allowed men to imagine themselves inside the porn scenes, intensifying the feelings of lust and shame that made men want to hide. Priscilla and I had never talked about masturbation in our 28 years of marriage. Even in my 16,000 movies confession, I hadn't told her I'd masturbated while watching the movies. It was just too embarrassing, too shameful to say out loud. I had talked with my sons about masturbation, but only to tell them not to do it because once they started the habit, it would be hard to stop. This was the one thing I knew was true about masturbation, and I feared my sons would wind up like me. Some men in the group tentatively tested saying masturbation, but I could tell it was uncomfortable for them. An older guy, a Marine veteran, said he would relieve himself he couldn't say masturbation or any of its crude derivatives. Also, anytime I placed my workbook on top of my Bible, he'd reorder them, hiding the workbook beneath. He said, Phil, my parents taught me to honor God's word by not putting anything else on top of it. You need to always keep your Bible on top. Are you kidding me, I thought? Here you are, separated from your wife, having sex with other women, hooked on porn and masturbation, and you're telling me the key to recovery is making sure there's nothing on top of my Bible? Well, 
That's what the old me would have fired back, stating how ridiculous that virtue sounded. Instead, I absorbed his correction and suppressed my typical pride that would have forcefully argued my point of view with numerous Bible verses to support my position. Not this time. I could see my pride was at the heart of my desire to correct him. I could not let my pride get a foothold at this retreat. I now understood that the real problem with masturbation wasn't the physical act. It was the fantasies imprinted in my mind that enforced the belief that sex was all about me. Even then, I recalled my lust over the first pornographic pictures I'd seen as a child. And I recall Matthew 5.28 in which Jesus said, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I was facing the truth. The sin of lust and adultery happens first based on what's happening inside my head, not outside. In theory, if I masturbated with no sexual fantasies, I could masturbate without sin. Those with children may have seen this when their toddlers first discovered their genitals, even among company. While such times may have been embarrassing, their discoveries weren't sin, but purely attaching their minds to the feelings of their biological structures, not to lust or sexual fantasies. I came face to face with another truth. While it was theoretically possible for some people to masturbate without sin, it wasn't possible for me. I had indulged in sexual fantasies and lusts through masturbation since I was probably 11 years old. The more I fantasized, the more such thoughts dominated my mind, even when I was making love with Priscilla. Fantasies and masturbation had stolen from my wife and me the moments of true passion we could have experienced together. Instead, I had allowed my thoughts to roam among my concocted fantasies perpetuated by porn and massage parlors. My lack of understanding what masturbation was doing to me made me self-centered, consumed only with fulfilling my own sexual desires. Thereby, I was a taker rather than a giver in my sexual relationship with Priscilla. I was seeing that God designed sexual desire to drive men closer to their wives and that I had allowed sexual fantasies to drive me to porn and masturbation. Rather than linger for an hour of lovemaking with Priscilla, my mind and body had pursued sexual release that took only minutes. It was no wonder she didn't seem to enjoy sex and had frequent dreams of my infidelity. After everyone shared why they had come to the retreat, Paul asked, Men, do you believe you have the power to say no to your lust? My simple off-the-cuff answer was no. That's why I'm here. If I could say no to porn and massage parlors, I wouldn't be in this predicament. I would have said no a long time ago. I began to think maybe Paul hadn't thought about the complexity of what I was going through. If after four days he's going to say the secret to success is just say no, maybe I should just go home right now. Paul turned to Jason, who had just arrived, and asked him to share his story. Jason was young, energetic, and lively. He was a pastor's kid with a long history of sexual immorality, drugs, and alcohol abuse, and he used the word masturbation frequently. He talked openly about what had happened in his marriage and how it had wound up on the brink of crisis. Nothing he had done had worked to curb his sexual appetite. Then he'd attended Four Days to Freedom four years ago, and he'd not looked at porn or masturbated since. What? Did I hear that right? 
He attended this retreat four years ago and hasn't looked at porn or masturbated? With Jason's new understanding, God had transformed his lustful desires, which in turn had restored his life and marriage. His testimony got my attention and started changing my thinking about one pertinent part of Paul's question I'd overlooked. Do you believe? My life had been a secret testament of failure that generated a cycle of sin, shame, and repentance followed by failure. As I would meditate on my defeats, I'd become further defeated and replace the truth of God's word with a lie. Since I have no power to stop what I'm doing, I need to manage my sin to minimize the effect on my family and me. My capacity to believe anything different had disintegrated. God was now helping me replace that lie with His truths. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.2 This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6.18 I knew these verses, but had put them in the category of things I should obey but couldn't. So, these verses were aspirational, targets to shoot for but not achievable because I had never believed I could change. The Apostle Thomas had the same belief problem, which earned him the name Doubting Thomas. The other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I shall see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the places of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. John 20, 25-28 Thomas believed when Jesus showed his wounds to him. Jesus could have shown up with no wounds or scars, but he chose to let Thomas see what he had experienced. He knew that when Thomas saw his wounds and scars, he would believe. As man after man in our group openly shared their wounds and scars, I began to believe that God was who He said He was. The men who had come to testify the freedom that they had found were not merely talking about God's power. They were demonstrating that power by showing their wounds and scars, just like how Jesus showed His to Thomas. Seeing the transformation that had taken place in the alumni's lives propelled me towards seeing and believing that God could transform me as well. The familiar verses that had been only aspirational to me in the past were now possible. I began to believe that whatever command God gave, He also gave power to obey. For all the years leading to the retreat, I thought I was lacking some intellectual knowledge that would change my life. But in reality, I was missing the power of God that comes through believing. When I had read about doubting Thomas in the past, I had focused more on the next verse. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. John 20, 29. 
Jesus's response had seemed to me like a rebuke and pushed me toward thinking that people who had not seen the miraculous were more blessed than people who had seen the miraculous. However, with my new insight, I believe Jesus was showing Thomas he provides a way for everyone to be blessed, even me and the men around me who had proven to be slaves to sin. Some people have faith to believe without seeing, and they are blessed. Others struggle with their faith, and still, God shows them his marvelous power and gives his grace to help them believe. Neither person is blessed more than the other. For the men at Four Days to Freedom, many of us struggled to believe God had the power to change us. But by his grace and through the men's testimonies, we were now seeing God demonstrate his death-defying, life-transforming, miraculous power. Gentlemen, Paul continued, you are all here because you've been unable to change the behaviors that have caused you and your wives a lot of pain. You have to understand that you do what you do because you feel what you feel, because you think what you think. The problem isn't in your doing. It's in your thinking. You've never done anything you didn't feel like doing, and you've never had a feeling that didn't start with your thinking. The battle is in your mind. So your thinking is what needs to change. Renewing your mind is where the victory starts. Apps on your phone and accountability partners may help control what you do, but you will never be free until you change your thinking. Without changing the patterns of your mind, you'll always be tethered to counselors, phone apps, accountability partners, and other curbs and bumpers. Wow, that was a big statement. It summarized what I'd acutely felt for the past 18 years. I genuinely wanted to stop my behaviors, but I first needed transformation in my thinking. In the past, I had asked God to transform my behaviors rather than my desires, yet I had failed over and over. Thereby, I believed transformation was impossible. In other words, I had tried to change from the outside by changing my behaviors instead of from the inside by asking God to change my thinking and believing he could. It was clear that my thinking had always been the problem, and God's healing and transformation had to start with my mind. As other Four Days to Freedom alumni unpacked their rescue stories, my belief emerged that God could change me from the inside out. Since he had done it for them, he would do it for me. Like Thomas, when I saw the power of God in the scars of the alumni's testimonies, a switch inside me flipped from unbelief to belief. Yes, my belief in God's power to heal me was just a spark, a flicker, a minute speck. But it moved my thoughts from thinking that healing was merely possible with God to believing it was probable. I could feel the truth of his healing power taking root in me, not only in my mind, but in my emotions. It was what I had begged God to do in me only four months earlier. Just like Thomas, I was encountering the healing power of God that not only had raised Jesus from the dead, but would raise and heal me as well. Every man's testimony mentioned two essential words, pride and humility. I recalled Paul's words to me on the plane. Phil, you have a pride problem, and God wants to fix it. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My pride had kept all my problems hidden, allowing my sinful behaviors to grow. My entire life to that point had focused on making myself look good, to feel that I was somebody. 
I had pursued my career and church positions so others would admire me. I had pulled Priscilla and my children along with me, asking them to look good because their appearance reflected on me. My whole life had been self-centered, full of pride. For the first time, I was stripping away the fig leaves I'd hidden my true self behind and allowing others to see what a proud, arrogant man I had become. Paul had also told me, You need to take steps of humility through your confessions. When you do, you'll position yourself to receive God's amazing grace and healing in your life. I had always linked the word confession to forgiveness, focusing on 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I had ignored James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I desperately needed healing in my broken state, and I now saw how healing was linked to confession of sin and prayer. Though I had cried out to God four months prior to heal my mind, I had wanted instantaneous healing without anyone knowing. Now, for the first time, I understood that God's healing would come when I positioned myself in faith to receive His amazing grace, which meant pulling everything out of darkness and laying it all out in the light of truth. I needed to allow God to work from the inside out. I had to be hot to be healed. Our group asked Paul many questions about transparently confessing our sins to our wives and how they would react. In general, there was a lot of fear among us. We had all managed our lives through secrecy with the pass card that we were protecting our wives from truths that would hurt them. I'll never forget Paul's enormous encouragement. We've not seen wives walk away from husbands who are truly broken over their sin. Am I broken over my sin or just over the circumstances I found myself in? I recall Priscilla's tears as she had confessed her apathy and rebellion toward God. Yes, she had natural brokenness over my sin, what I had done to her, but she was also spiritually broken over her own apathy and rebellion and her choice to trust men rather than God. I was clearly experiencing a lot of emotional pain over what I had done to Priscilla, which caused only natural brokenness, the type of brokenness everyone experiences when something traumatic happens. But what I needed was spiritual brokenness. I called out to God to show me my pride and break me spiritually so healing and rebuilding could begin from the inside. It was hard for me to fathom how much He had pursued me and my healing because He truly loved me. Even in the midst of my sin, God had been showing me much kindness while resisting my pride and arrogance. I suddenly realized what Romans 2.4 meant by, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. I let God's love wash over me as I saw and experienced His kindness in a new way and felt His compassion pulling me into spiritual brokenness. As the weekend progressed, Paul spoke about how fear controls people to the point of believing lies that shape their thinking. My thoughts turned to my number one fear the enemy had long whispered inside me. You are just like your father and destined to turn out like him. When I discovered my dad was also viewing porn, I had agreed with a lie that porn doesn't hurt anyone 
and had accepted that I would vainly battle the lure of this temptation for the rest of my life. Out of fear that my children would become like me, I had laid down the law to them regarding sexual purity and become legalistic in controlling their phones, internet usage, and who they spent time with. My legalism had created emotional distance from my children and Priscilla as I'd prioritized correction over connection. During the retreat, I journaled raw truth each day, asking God to give words for my emotions. As I processed what I was learning, I wrote, Praying for Priscilla all the time. She is bearing my burden. She is amazing. I could not do this without her. Well, maybe God is the real key, and He's using Priscilla. I pray I will never forget how Priscilla wailed. When I exposed the stent of my sin, it was so painful. I want to feel this whenever I'm tempted to sin. I must be ready to never have sex again. I need to focus on restoring my relationship with God first. Restoring only a physical relationship with Priscilla will not be the key. Oh God, please help me. Journaling was a powerful tool that helped me practice hearing from God, helped me decipher my feelings and tangibly reminded me of the way forward. I didn't know it at the time, but daily journaling would create a treasure trove of God's words combined with my thoughts about what He was doing in my life. I didn't expect to hear from Phil, so I was surprised when the phone rang on Friday evening. Hey, what's going on? I didn't think you'd call. Hey, I have a few minutes. How's it going with you and the girls? Everything's fine. How's the retreat? I couldn't make small talk while we were trying to climb the mountain facing us. It's going well. It's a small group. Several men have come and gone sharing testimonies. One interesting thing, this retreat isn't very religious, if that makes sense. I mean, Paul doesn't open or close sessions with typical perfunctory prayer, and he doesn't force us to make a list of religious things to do, like reading our Bibles and praying more. He talks a lot about pride versus humility, what God wants to do in our lives, and living open, broken, and free. It felt good to hear Phil focus on something besides just looking more religious. We had done enough of that for years. I didn't want to live in our hypocritical lie any longer. Priscilla, could I ask you to think about one thing before I get home? What is it? Think about what I need to do to help you feel safe. What boundaries do you want me to have so you're not worried about what I'm doing? Whatever God brings to your mind, I'm willing to do it. Anything. Okay? Well, this is certainly new. I'd never heard Phil offer to give up anything for me, and his question hit the core of my fears, where I was still living. His work would still necessitate his traveling and having client lunches and dinners. Until he confessed to secret life, I'd never worried about where he was. But now I had to think seriously about his future absences. Okay, I'll pray about it. Great. Thanks a lot. I'll see you Sunday afternoon. This retreat is really helping me see myself. Good. I've been praying for you. See you on Sunday. I was encouraged. The old Phil would have been focused more on his agenda than on my safety. Something had to be happening inside of him. 
On Saturday, Paul asked us to write an identity statement about who we truly were in Christ. I went outside by the lake, sat cross-legged on the grass with my workbook, and wept. I was spiritually broken, humbled, and genuinely contrite, seeing for the first time where my sin had come from, where sin had taken me, and what God now wanted to do inside me. I begged him for words that would adequately sum up my feelings about who I really was. That's when I heard God's voice inside me, responding to my cry. You have a father. I buckled. A word from God about my dad? My fears and insecurities had told me that I would become like him, and I had come too close. God continued speaking with an almost audible pause between each word. You have a father whose name is faithful and true. I gasped, seeing his truth for the first time. My fear had come as I'd focused on my natural father, but God wanted me to focus on my heavenly father, the only father whose name could be consistently faithful and true. He was the only one who could set the godly example I needed to follow. I began to write, and the words came quickly. I am Phil, the son of my father, whose name is faithful and true. I bear the imprint of his character in my body, my soul, and spirit, and I seek to experience his truth in my innermost being. I celebrate his faithfulness in my relationships with my wife and family, and I embrace humility to break the chains of sin and set the captives free. I know God, I hear his voice in me, and I will follow and obey him even when the cost is great. I trust God for his victory in my life and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord for my children, their children, in all the generations to come. As I later read this statement in front of our group, I was declaring for the first time who God said I really was. It was the truth based on hearing His voice. I no longer had a hard heart. Softening to His molding began to change everything. After Phil's call, I found my Four Days to Hope workbook and flipped through the pages, remembering what God had done in me only a week ago. There was one final assignment I hadn't been able to complete because I'd been emotionally drained and exhausted. At the retreat on Sunday morning, we had gathered as usual for breakfast, but the atmosphere had changed. Yes, we were tired from the previous night's prayer time, but there was a new spiritual energy and openness that had not been there before. After breakfast, Jenny had asked us to write an identity statement, which was new for me. I had never taken time to consider who I was from God's perspective. I had opened my workbook, picked up my pen, and tried to start writing, but I couldn't form the sentences or even find the words. Writing and grammar had never been easy for me and had created many insecurities. Portuguese was my first language, and when I'd come to the United States in third grade, unable to speak English fluently, teachers had written me off. As a result, I'd run from anything that required writing or speaking. So when Jenny asked us to write our identity statement, I froze and waited to hear from God. 
When she had later asked us to share our statements, my paper had been blank, and I had remained quiet. But it was okay. Even though I couldn't write God's thoughts of me, I knew He had done an undeniable work in my life. Now almost a week later, I stared at the same blank sheet. I asked God for His words to write. After many minutes, I wrote the first sentence, calling myself what I heard God calling me. The rest followed as I heard more from Him. I am Priscilla, the daughter of the Eternal One. He has given me the power and authority to overcome the evil one in my life, proclaim God's goodness to those around me, heal the brokenhearted, and restore families with His truth. I will fight valiantly like Deborah to see the goodness of God restored in my family's life. The beautiful God-given words provided oil to my wounds, and I sat at the kitchen table sobbing. I knew the story of Deborah in the Bible, the judge of Israel and the strong and mighty warrior. That's how God wanted me to see myself, strong and brave in the face of battle, a warrior. I would fight for victory and trust God to help me overcome the mountain of hurt and disappointment. Seeing myself as God saw me gave me hope, just as Four Days to Hope weekend had proclaimed. As I pulled into the garage, I remember how I'd felt a week ago when Priscilla had returned from Four Days to Hope, wondering whether I would get a hug or small kiss, but receiving neither. This time, I was seeing life through a different lens. In the past, I had evaluated my relationship with Priscilla based on how sex was going, how well she was meeting my needs physically. I now knew my whole construct had been wrong. God wanted me to evaluate my relationship with Priscilla spiritually, not physically. I had to let go of any expectation of a physical relationship and wait for God to first heal our relationship spiritually and emotionally. I heard the kitchen door open, and in walked Phil. He looked different. His eyes were brighter, and he greeted me with more energy than I'd seen in him in the past two weeks. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good, I replied. My thoughts immediately went to all the times past when Phil had returned from trips. It had always taken a few days for us to reconnect. I was unsure what would happen now as we tested constructing a new relationship. I just knew there wouldn't be any arrival sex, kisses, or hugs. I still wanted physical distance and a restart in that part of our relationship. After a few pleasantries and his hellos to the girls, Phil and I sat on the porch, seeking some private time to talk about his weekend. He opened his Four Days to Freedom workbook and walked me through every page, including 13 action steps he had written. Many of the steps centered on confessing his hypocrisy and sin to our children, extended family, and friends, as he talked about before leaving for the retreat. He appeared serious, and I knew that his confessing to family members would be a tremendous step for him, because he had always been so focused on what others thought about him. If he's willing to expose his sin to other people, God must be doing something incredible inside of him. Priscilla, I have so much more to share with you, but first, I need to apologize to you for something else and ask you to forgive me. When we got married, I should have told you about my porn problems, so you would have had a choice whether to marry me. Without knowing what you were getting yourself into, you made vows to God and me. 
I was too proud to admit my problems and fearful you would dump me if you knew the truth. Keeping the truth hidden from you wasn't right, and I'm so sorry. I was completely in the wrong, and you probably feel like you've been duped into marrying a guy like me. I should have told you before I asked you to marry me. Will you forgive me? I was stunned and surprised at Phil's genuine humility and plea for forgiveness for something that had happened so many years ago. If I had known about his porn problem when we were dating, I would have thought twice about marrying him. However, a confession from him back then may have pushed me to come clean with him about my past and encouraged us to be hot with each other from the very beginning rather than waiting 28 years. With Jenny's words about forgiveness still ringing in my ears, I said, I forgive you. I had to let go of Phil and his sins and put him in God's hands. I wasn't perfect, and there was no way to change the past. God had forgiven me, so there was no way I couldn't forgive Phil. Thank you. Tears were welling up in Phil's eyes. I could tell his heart was soft, and we'd had a brief moment of emotional connection. One other thing. Did you think about my question on boundaries? Yes. Phil's previous business trips and other connections with the world returned to my thoughts. All your travels worry me. I know that it's your job, but I don't like the idea of you traveling all over the world by yourself. And I don't want you to have any lunches alone with women. Will you do that? Phil paused, his eyes searching as he leaned back into the chair. Yes, when I need to have lunches with women, I'll bring someone else with me. Uh, No problem. But my business travel is a problem. Though I've already done a lot of my travel for this year, and I don't have anything else scheduled for a few months. What if I added someone to my team, a male, who could travel with me? That way, I wouldn't be traveling alone. Can you give me a little time to work this out? Okay, I think that will help. I didn't know what else to say. At least we'd have a few months before we needed to address his travel. He reiterated his commitment to do whatever it took to help me feel safe, and we agreed to keep boundaries at the forefront. After some time of reconnecting with the kids and eating dinner, we climbed into our imaginary twin beds. Priscilla? Yes? Paul told me that to be free, I can't bury anything in secrecy. I need to share with you the details as they come to my mind, and I've started to remember some things I've done and some things that happened to me. I didn't really know what Phil was talking about, which created fear. What type of things? Even though it was getting late, he seemed eager to share his thoughts, something he had rarely done. Well, I want to disclose everything the Holy Spirit brings to my mind about what I've done to offend you and also things I've done that created shame in me. But I'm really afraid about the memories that will come because I know those will be hard to talk about. I was somewhat prepared because the leaders at Four Days to Hope had told us that most men would have more to share after Four Days to Freedom. I didn't relish hearing the details of Phil's double life, but I knew that confession was essential for healing, a way out of his secret life. I needed to ask God for the grace to hear his confession. 
since my rage and anger could shut him down. My reactions would set the boundaries for what he'd be willing to confess with each new recollection. God, give me grace to hear and respond the way you respond to our sin, with sadness and not wrath. Well, it's also hard for me to hear, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get through this. Okay, thanks. I I appreciate that. I'm trying to walk out the healing God's done inside of me. Good night. Phil's voice was soft as he turned off the light and rolled over. No kiss or hug, no touching, was part of our restart. I woke up at 2.15 a.m. in the middle of a dream. I had gone to sleep fearful of remembering more details of my sin and shame. In my dream, some type of non-human being was responsible. He was small, blue, and muscular, with no hair or clothes, squatting down behind our bathroom door, trembling and saying, I'm so scared, I can't remember. I can't remember anything else. He was so real, so vivid in my dream that when it woke me, I had gotten out of bed, went to the bathroom door, and jerked it back to see what was behind it. Nothing. Then Ephesians 6.12 came to mind. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I spoke out loud in a declaration, as if unseen forces were listening. I command any spiritual beings who are tormenting me to leave in the name of Jesus and by his authority. That felt really weird. But I remembered Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. I immediately felt God's presence, and I returned to bed and went back to sleep. The antidote to fear was remembering that my Heavenly Father was with me. My fear of remembering more details of my sin and shame left me. An hour or so later, I woke up, went to the kitchen, and sat at our table. Only 17 days prior, our table had been the place of my confession and despair. Now, it was becoming a place of spiritual insight and healing. I opened my journal and wrote about my dream. Fully awake, I realized the dream read a bit crazy. I had always thought people who talked about demons were off their rockers. But I had seemingly experienced what they had, the work of spiritual forces the Apostle Paul described in Ephesians 6.12. I wondered whether the dream had merely been the result of my subconscious preoccupation with my fears, or perhaps I was gaining an increasing sensitivity to spiritual forces I believed were at work around me. I didn't want to settle only for an intellectual and natural understanding of events and circumstances. I wanted to see situations the way God saw them, spiritually. So I prayed, Father, Please make me aware of things going on in the spiritual realm. I rolled over and glanced at the clock. It was about 4 a.m. I could see the light from the kitchen peeking under the bedroom door. Phil was already up. I got up, put on my robe, and walked into the kitchen and sat at the table with him. We exchanged good mornings, and he told me about his dream. Having grown up in Brazil as a missionary's kid, I had seen and heard about such dreams and spiritual links, so his nightmare didn't faze me. It made sense. 
We were fighting a spiritual battle and should expect some dark spiritual experiences like his dream. Moving on, Phil returned to the topic most tender to my heart. Priscilla, I need to confess to our children. I've been such a hypocrite, and I know it's affected my relationships with them. I want to do what I can to straighten it out. He had made it clear that confessing to our children was on his action list, but frankly, I hadn't expected he'd jump into it so fast. My heart sped up as I considered such a blow to our children. I decided to give him my opinion. Phil, I think you should confess to Michael first because he's getting married in a month. We need to give him and Chelsea time to absorb this and not put it right up against their wedding. Michael was our third child, 24 years old, going to school full-time, holding down a job, and engaged to Chelsea. Although he still lived with us, we hardly saw him. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. Also, I think you should be with me at all the confessions so our kids can see your face and not wonder what's happening on your side. I also want to make sure I don't leave something out that you believe is important. What do you think about Chelsea being there when I confess? I think she should be there. She's going to be a part of the family, and she can see how messed up we really are. It's not fair for her to learn about it later. Phil nodded. We both stared down, letting the magnitude of what we just agreed to sink in. I'll ask Chelsea to come over for dinner on Wednesday night. I realized the invitation would put things into motion that would change our family dynamics forever. Being hot with our kids, not just each other, was an unpredictable place to go. But it was the start of God igniting change in our entire family. Savage Questions for Reflection Number one, how would your spouse say your pride has affected your marriage? Number two, what's the biggest step of humility you've ever taken? What additional steps of humility do you need to take? Three, have you ever had a restart in your marriage? What happened? And do you feel like it was successful? Why or why not? This is Phil and Priscilla Fretwell. Thanks for listening. Our book, Savage Marriage, Triumph Over Betrayal and Sexual Addiction, is now available on Amazon. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Savage Marriage Ministries. Also, join our Savage Marriage community at SavageMarriageMinistries.com. And remember, it's God who is at work in your savage adventure.